I think I just lay there for quite a bit of time, not being able to really do anything. I was so overheated, just exhausted in a really bad shape physically. Um, I just pushed my body way too much into a place it shouldn't really be going when you're trying to solo and run and go hard. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 54 with rock climber, athlete and entrepreneur Tom Randall, who's best known for his exploits as a crack climber, in inverted commas. Beginning his adult life as a stock market trader in London, he escaped the rat race in the true sense of the phrase and has never looked back. Recently, he decided to combine two great Lake District endurance challenges with an unexpected outcome. This project is the focus of a film I'm currently working on with my friend and colleague Matt Hardy for RAB that will be released early next year. Keep your eyes peeled for it and we'll share the link on our Instagram down the line. This episode is also the last in our third season, but we're putting together a special series for Kendall Mountain Festival that will be released from the 19th of November on their channels and available on our podcast platforms in December. And then we'll be back in the new year with season four. As ever, we appreciate every review, any feedback and all of your support. For now, over to Tom. I think a good place to start is logically the start um although i guess it would be good for you to maybe give a little bit of background for those who don't know who you are you know how would you describe yourself nowadays i think i'd describe myself as a more or less a 50 50 mix between professional climbing athlete and 50% business owner, entrepreneur, some kind of word that's like that. Because I very much have now a a mixture in my daily life, activities, responsibilities, and interestingly, motivation for both of those. And I I would say they're very similar. So I have uh, all my rock climbing and, you know, the training I do for it and preparing every year for trips abroad. And I continue to do that. And I absolutely love it. And it's intrinsic to all of my happiness really but then I have a number of businesses that I own and run which again I absolutely love the process is just insanely good and it's just as rewarding as climbing and I try and fit them somehow (laughs) into each day and week. Can you give us a brief overview of the businesses? Uh, So the businesses are all I think they're all within climbing uh, yeah, more or less all within climbing. Um, and they are, they range from anything from manufacturing of climbing goods through to distribution, uh, through to, uh, tech, so, uh, sort of apps, um, and then also service provision, whether it's, uh, uh, soft software platforms, uh, online, uh, coaching services, uh, and training or, or data management. So it's a bit of a broad range and 
it's nice because I get to see the big picture and that's in itself very, very interesting for me. And to add an extra layer of complication, you're also a dad and a husband, right? Yeah, although that sometimes gets put off to the side. In fact, I say often, uh, really does get put off to the side because it's probably the thing that screams at me the, le- the least and has the quietest voice in my life. So I have to be very careful how I balance that out with everything else because the other two, climbing and business, shout at me a lot and they're constantly like, asking me and demanding whereas uh, my family are a lot quieter about how much they require of my time. Okay, God, that's interesting. Okay, we'll come back to all of that. So, to backpedal, um, what were you like as a child, and what was home like, and what was childhood like? Ooh, good question. What was I like as a child? I... um, It's hard not to see childhood as an adult through the lens of who you are as an adult I think it's very easy to get stuck into that trap Um, but I would more or less see it as being that I was a very energetic um, activity sport based child I was I just wanted to do every sport on the planet everything Um, and that was all the way through to my teenage years and everything Um, it was it was very important for me to just be able to do every single possible sport. And then in with that, I always had a very deep interest in, I could just class it as a broad thing, entrepreneurialism from a very, very young age. Um, I collected and traded stamps from, what, six or seven years old? Um, I followed the stock market from my very, very earliest teens. And it was... All those things just fascinated me. I think I was just a mega curious, uh, high energy kid, but also wanted to get good at lots of things. And I enjoyed the process. So I was constantly jumping from this thing. I was going to get good at that. And then I'd do this thing and I'd get good at that. And I'd work out how the process worked to get good at that thing. And then if if I ever felt like I mastered it and I got really good at it, I often actually would uh, go off the boil and I'd leave it alone um, and then I'd go on to the next thing. Uh, So, yeah, I look back to my childhood and there was basically a lot going on. I picked up so much in those 18 years and almost none of them directly uh, you could see now as an adult, but I think that underpins a lot of who I am and how I sort of operate, I guess. And did that feel normal? I think it, everything feels normal to you when you're living it and it's your life. I, I've become a lot more outgoing as an adult and be able to kind of like talk to people and express myself better. And as a kid, I was quite in my own, in my own world, really. Even though I you know, did things like team sports, I didn't really like them because I didn't really want to engage with others. I wanted to just do my own thing. And so I was just in my own land of, just loving all these processes and learning stuff that was, you know, massively rewarding to me. And now it's just changed a little bit more as an adult because I can talk to people a bit better. (laughs) Do you think you were a happy child? Uh, I'd say I was a very happy child until maybe like teenage years. And then senior school and things like that, they got more difficult 
Um, I struggled with all sorts of stuff um, from like the school setup. Uh, I got like I guess every kid just gets bullied a little bit because I wasn't always the best at you know looking after myself or, or sort of uh, uh, sort of like backing myself up um, and how I interacted with other kids and things. Um, and so it's very much, I think I look back and, you know, as much as you can remember down to zero, zero to 10, 11, amazing. I really, really value those years. Uh, 11 to 18 or so, uh, very, very challenging. Um, a lot of stuff going on at home, uh, a difficult home environment. Um, and so it just... There was a whole load of things which really added into the mix that were very tricky. <laughs> let's let's put it that way. Um, and I think when you when you grow up and you you have those struggles both at home and in your school environment, uh, it maybe turns you into quite a resilient individual, and you have to adapt ways to to cope with that sort of stuff. Um, and it's sort of like the the sort of most headline uh, description of it is that my mum had very, very poor mental health. Um, so it was a, a real struggle with that, um, mainly for her, but also for us as, as kids. Um, and my dad was sort of mostly outside of the country. Um, and so when you've got, you're trying to like support your family and I was, you know, with my two sisters, but then my mum was in hospital a lot and, and like a lot of conflict and teenage boys don't really get on that well with mums who are really having a very tough time. It's, it's all sorts of interesting stuff. <laughs> I try and call it interesting because actually it's very painful, but I, I try to like learn how to cope with it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to dig into that. I don't think that's appropriate, but... It's obviously had a profound effect on you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's had a, a very big, yeah, big impact on my life. But I've got better at using the stuff from my past in a beneficial way now. And like I try and always explain to people that I work with is that a lot of stuff in life can actually be reframed in a different way, even when it's painful or you didn't like it or it wasn't the result that you wanted. Uh, it's it's often a lot about perspective. Did you learn to do that yourself by accident or through trial and error, or was that taught or read? Ooh, um, I think it was a mixture of trial and error and and reading as well. Um, I read a. L it's funny. It's brought back some like even that question it brought back some old memories where. As, as a teenager, I read a lot about handwriting analysis, um, psychology. So I've really got into handwriting analysis for a long time. Um, and to the point where when I went to university in the first year, I used to do it a lot for people in halls um, and analyze their handwriting. It's like, they just loved me doing it. It's like good fun. Um, uh, and then I found out that my grandmother also did it and I never knew it, um, which is really bizarre. I like, found that out years later. Um, but... Uh, yeah. I've lost my train of thought. What was I going on? Um, <laughs> Got off on handwriting analysis now. This is how I get like down a hole. I'm like, that was interesting. <laughs> it was um, whether or not 
that resilience to trauma or reframing trauma. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, um, the books um, was I read a lot around um, handwriting analysis, and I was getting interested into how the mind works and who we are, how we portray ourselves, how we reflect ourselves, and then a lot of uh, I guess basic self-help books. Um, NLP. I really got into NLP for quite some time. Um, I liked reading about the psychology behind sport performance, and it. It was, yeah, almost like my own self-counselling <laughs> process. But by the time I got to my early 20s, I did realise that that's, I can only take you so far. Uh, and then after that, actually, it becomes a little bit more useful to maybe go to third parties who can help you out and provide a different perspective. Um, but it was, yeah, it was a good journey. Um, picked yeah. up a lot over that time. Yeah. And it feels like a tangent, but there's a process to this. Um, I think that often people who see outdoor athletes assume that they were just always like that, you know, raised in the mountains by outdoor parents and, you know, were winning championships at seven years old. That wasn't you, right? I mean, you weren't living in the Peak District and rock climbing at 18 years old. No, not at all. Um, I mean, I, I grew up in South Africa, first off, for five years or so, and we were right in the middle of a, a national park. Um, which is a really cool place to, to grow up. Um, I think it's actually one of the only towns inside of a national park, um, anywhere in Africa or South Africa. Um, and then we moved to Cornwall, and that was just you know a bit of beach surfing and stuff like that. And then in my teenage years, it was just lots and lots of different sports at school and team sports and you know all the traditional stuff. And my only real experience for the outdoors then was um, kind of like the, what's it called, the Duke of Edinburgh type things. And I felt like that was really, I liked that and I liked the idea of it and I really wanted to do it. But funnily enough, the first couple of years when I tried to do it at school, I always got turned down by the, the groups that were allowed to be run at school. And I ended up on these crappy trips that I didn't want to go on, which were other activities. And I remember really resenting it, seeing photos when they came back of kids in my class who'd gone to North Wales and they'd gone up Snowdon. Oh, this looks like the best thing ever. And I saw them jumping in the water from bridges. I, I want to do that. I really, really want to do that. And so I eventually just met up with someone at school who actually happened to be, you know, doing rock climbing. And that was really my first, you know, intro to climbing and more of the outdoors and Wales and the Lake District and coming up to Yorkshire. That was the, the first bits. Even though as kids and family, we went for walks and we were outdoorsy-ish, I, I didn't really have an appreciation of adventure and exploring and, and things until, until then. So how did you end up moving to London? Uh, I went to London after uni because it was really the only logical place where I could do a, a finance trading job. And I, I knew I wanted to uh, work in, you know, uh, some sort of form of trading or uh, financial analysis. I wasn't quite sure which one I wanted to do. And when I left Sheffield University, the only place that I could get a job was basically in London. So I went there because the job said, <laughs> you know, you've got to go down there. So you were living in Sheffield, sorry, at university? Yeah, so I came, to, I came to university and that's where I did my first steps of proper climbing. 
and really got into it. Yeah, I chose university, the university based on how many climbing photos there were in the prospectus. And even better, in the geography section of the prospectus, there was someone climbing on grit. I was like, that is me. I've got to go to Sheffield Uni. And my school were horrified because I only applied to one university. I was like, I am going there or I'm going nowhere. And they were, I remember being in that meeting and going, he said something really rude to me. Like, of all the education we've given you at this school, I didn't think that someone could make such an idiotic decision or, you know, something like that. And I was like, these people just don't get me. I'm committed. I'm like all in. I'm going there and I'm not going anywhere else. But the teacher didn't see it that way. Um, I remember being really pissed off about that. But also, they just don't get my perspective. Yeah, but she, I mean, you strike me as the sort of person who is motivated by that response. Uh, no, I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't say that I'm motivated. I'd say it was more like I was so committed. I didn't really care. I mean, he could have even said some horrible repercussion of not getting in. And I went, no, I have made my decision up. Not, oh, sorry, made up my mind uh, on that. And there's no backing down from it. So what was the thought process of you've moved to Sheffield Uni, you're at university studying geography, you're exploring the grit stone and really getting into climbing and you suddenly, well, not suddenly, but you think, I want to be a trader and you move to London. Um, well, I, well I'd, so I, I went to university and I, I had to be self-supported through university. So I didn't get like help from my parents on any of it. So I traded my student loan to make money at university, um, which is probably not an advisory thing to do. But I had like, I think I maybe got three grand a year from a student loan or two grand a year. Uh, it's a long time ago, like 1998 or wherever it was. Uh, and yeah, I basically traded the money that I got from that to make more so I could pay my way through university, uh, which ended up being a really good CV for my job when I went down to London because I was competing with all these kids down in London that like been to Oxford, Cambridge, Durham, had like MBAs and just way better CVs than me. I had a blooming geography degree. Um, like nothing really to show, but I was like, but you can check my trading record. And I traded before I went to university as well with my own money. So I was the teenager that would save up 500 pounds and I wouldn't spend it. I put it in the stock market and I would try and invest in it. So I was very much of that mindset that I was trying to do something with it and I wanted to understand how I could do it. And so when I started that trading job down in London, it was like the logical extension of, well, I've done this already. I've proven myself. I know how to take the risk. It doesn't worry me. I've I already had like a developed psychology around it. So I don't have fear of the losses or how to control myself or be disciplined. So when I walked into the job, it was like, this just feels like someone's given me more money and a better uh, potential with which work rather than just a few grand from my student loan. And did you enjoy it? Oh, I loved the job, yeah. Absolutely loved it. Uh, it just was that London wasn't very enjoyable. Uh, well, it's a, just a big city and I spent my whole time just getting out of it um, and traveling away. And the job is more like, how do I describe it? Well, I worked in a proprietary futures trading house, so it's quite distinct from going and working for Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley you are essentially your own boss, so you're self-employed and you're backed by a firm. So you go in with a track record that they believe that you can make money from a, trade it, from a trading strategy or whatever you use 
and you'll get a split of that. So you get to keep some of it, they'll take some of it for essentially putting the money up to be able to back you. And uh, with that, it means that you can go into the office whatever time of day you want to, you can wear whatever you want and you can trade whatever you want. So it's full responsibility. But if you cock up, it's, it's on your head. So when you have a month and you have zero in your paycheck at the end of the month, it's no one else's fault apart from yours. And so you have to go in with that attitude of understanding that. And, and that was great for me. Like, I, I love the job. It was a game. It was fascinating learning how it worked, how your psychology worked, the mechanics of it. But I also learned with it that one, every time I had a good month, all I wanted to do was just bugger off and go to Yosemite for a month. Like I went to Yosemite 13 times in, I think like two and a half years or something. <laughs> so when people ask me, oh, have you ever been to Yosemite to go climbing? I'm like, yeah, quite a lot. <laughs> uh, I was just always going there to go and do climbing trips and big walling and, and everything. Uh, but because I was self-employed, again, my bot, or my boss in inverted commas, could only say, well, I would love you to stay here and do lots of trading. I think you'll make more money. But I was really feeling like this is just a means to an end. I like the game. It's enjoyable and I'm making okay money from it. But I just want to go climbing. As soon as I've got enough money in my bank, I'm just booking a flight and going off. So I wasn't really spending that much of the year, you know, actually working. <laughs> I was just going climbing. And likewise, every single day I was going down to the local climbing wall and doing some route setting at the climbing wall and going climbing before I was going to the office. Because I just liked that. It was just more fun than the climbing element. So I just learned that that was more important to me. And basically the location, the London trader scene, everything wasn't for me, uh, I didn't like the, the level or the extent of the partying. I didn't like the social life that went with it. I just liked the outdoors and I wanted to do that. And did that feel like a necessary part of it? I was just about to ask about the lifestyle. Did it feel like a necessary part? Um, I wouldn't say it was necessary. It was more like it was very, it was available and um, and I wasn't even in a firm where it was very bad. I was in a fairly standard firm where there was a reasonable amount of socialising. But when you have a bit more disposable income, you have other traders who have a lot more disposable income and drinks are always free. Other things are always free and they're available on offer. It can take you down a path which isn't uh, as good for you. And I'd already become quite reflective of what was good for me. And I realized that just, I just wasn't quite becoming the version of me that I wanted to be. And I was just getting, I was getting more angry and wound up about just general stuff. I was having an increasingly poor relationship with my other half. I just wasn't looking after myself and I just knew it was going down. I get too down a, I can't do things by halves. I'm all in or all off. And it wasn't where I wanted to go. So what happened? So, so I quit. <laughs> um, I can't even remember quite how it happened. I think it actually, it was catalyzed by me breaking up with my then girlfriend and me realizing that now I didn't have a relationship 
I didn't have someone that I could go and, or not as e easy to access to go and enjoy the outdoors with, like I was doing a lot of outdoor stuff with her. Um, and the things back in London, i.e. the job and the social stuff, didn't dent into it. It didn't make it feel better. Almost it actually just made it feel worse. So I started hating the job and it, it just was enough to make me think I need to, need to leave. So I just went to work and said, I'm, I'm going, uh, I'm moving to Sheffield. Um, and they were actually quite good. They offered to let me work remotely for a while. So I moved up to Sheffield and got a house up in Crooks and traded from my bedroom for, I think maybe three months or something. And which is kind of odd because I lived in a house with a few other climbers and there I was with like all my screens set up in my bedroom upstairs in Sheffield renting a room out for like 50 quid a week but trading <laughs> it was really odd it was funny but it worked? no because I realised that I didn't actually like the job enough not compared to the climbing and it was, it was good because I knew then where I had to go and what I wanted to do and I started looking around for something that I could do in the climbing scene and at least pay the bills. And that led to me taking a route setting job at an indoor climbing gym in Sheffield. And I think, I think when I went to that job, it was, I think it was like seven or eight grand a year or something. And the owner, I remember him sitting there like, are you sure you want to do this, Tom? Like, it doesn't seem like a wage that's okay for you. And I was like, no, 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 this seems like an ideal job. I love it. It's climbing. I, I just want to do this. And, and so I started doing that. So at this point, where are you with the rock climbing? Uh, so by that point I was, um, I'd say a, call it a very keen weekend warrior. I was climbing probably both days at the weekend and then training two days going indoors per week. And I was, you know, really keen to climb stuff that was E6, E7. And, you know, the sort of standard where you're a good amateur. Uh, you're certainly not pro. No one's going to be interested in sponsoring you. Uh, you can't make a career out of it. But people, you know, respect what you're doing and you're doing a reasonable amount of kind of relatively tricky stuff. And you can travel around the world with it and do lots. So you could, like, put up first ascents. You could go to most crags and climb a lot of the lines and it wasn't really until I started being up here and be able to access rock all the time that I then started doing a lot of first ascenting um, and I got to know, know Pete my climbing partner and start to do a lot of harder stuff with him and challenges and trips and first ascents abroad and in the UK that we I suppose slowly developed our name and and took on harder things and that's just chipped away at a few opportunities which took me a bit more down the professional climber route. And what was it about the climbing that drew you in and appealed so much and got you out? Um, what is it about climbing? It's a question that I've asked myself a lot again recently when I've been trying to juggle it with climbing and running. And I think climbing is so fascinating for me that it's, it's a very hard problem to solve. It's really, really complex. I'm not naturally that good at it. 
So I'm always on the back foot. So more or less every day is going to be hard for me and a, a challenge to work out what's going on, how I can get better at it. And it's all encompassing. When you do it, you literally think about nothing else. And for me, for my kind of mental health and ha happiness, having something that's so involving means that I actually switch off. So it's like a version of meditation or occupational therapy uh, to get me very engaged with something so I don't have to churn in my mind all this other stuff that's going on in my mind. So do you think you struggle to switch off? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm a wake up in the morning, the moment my eyes open, I'm just on it until I go at night and I'm just exhausted and my eyes are falling asleep. And I want to switch off. I so desperately want to switch off and I can't do it. It drives me mad. You it's, still can't? No. It's like an affliction. It's just... Like, even last night, and I knew that we were coming in to do, like, record this stuff tonight, and I, like, I really, really need a reason why I sleep tonight. Like, six or seven hours would be kind of good, because the previous night, I'd been training to, like, 3 a.m., because I got so psyched, and I just ended up having, like, a 3 a.m. training session. So I was, like, just on, like, sort of three hours of sleep the previous night. But last night, I just got into some interesting stuff to do with work I was like, oh no this seems more appealing than sleeping I should just keep going I'll probably just naturally fall asleep and then I looked at my watch and it was about midnight I was like, bugger I've got to go to sleep I've got to go to sleep and I went upstairs and then I went and had a shower and I started thinking about some more interesting stuff in the shower I was like oh I just need to check what the idea is and that how does that work so then I sat in bed and looking at more stuff and then I finally like fell asleep <laughs> but it's annoying because I wake up in the morning and I'm really tired <laughs> You, you, you consider six or seven hours a good night's sleep? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's better than nothing, isn't it? Yeah, but we need, <laughs> we need sleep to survive, don't we? Yeah, we do. I, I try and tell myself that. I am better than I used to be. What? <sighs> try not to go too deep with it all, but what are you chasing? Mm. Well, uh let me ask the question back to you. What am I chasing about what specifically? Like, are you asking about drive or why I'm doing it? I or? just, I think that if you're gunning this hard, I was going to say 24-7, but it's more like 27. Yeah. Um, what's the motivation to do that? Whether it's with the multiple businesses, whether it's with the climbing, you know, the inability to switch off, what are you looking for or chasing or what's the motivation? Uh, I think it's twofold from what I understand of myself so far at 40 years old. It's a, it's a sticking plaster. So basically, it's like a coping mechanism. And it's a drive for process and mastery. I think I've, I've managed to get quite good at a number of things over the years. And it's a very, very satisfying process. And once you do that and you repeat it, it becomes very addictive and you, you know what that process feels like, and it's, it's freaking brilliant. I love it, starting just rubbish at something, getting really good at it. And so I like just rolling that out and doing it again and again and again, because it's just very enjoyable. And then likewise, sticking plaster, just because I can't switch off. There's a lot of like unwanted thoughts I just don't really want, and I can cover them up by very excessive activity and constantly being engaged with things like the climbing again it's just been like good for me to 
get me through to wherever. <laughs> Who knows where I'm going? <laughs> no, that's really interesting. I think it's quite a unique perspective on it all, actually. I mean, I, I'm not going to. I'm really tempted to ask you about the sticking plaster, but I think we'll drift <laughs> somewhere else instead. Yeah. Um, okay, so I really want to talk about training, but first I think we should talk about Pete. So how... What's the relationship with Pete Whitaker and where did that come from and how does it develop? Uh, so with Pete, who he's been my you know number one climbing partner over the last 10 years or so, he now, or for a very long time now, he has been like my, my brother that I don't have. I have two sisters. Um, and I met him at a climbing wall in Sheffield where I was working so I was setting, working as a route setter and uh, I just kind of like he stood out from the crowd as being someone that was really unique looked at climbing in a different way very adventurous didn't want to be stuck in a niche wanted to try lots of different things out and and I went to him with a, a sort of a madcap idea um, initially and the first thing that we really did together was I'd been trying to break this record for the most number of routes sold in a day in the Peak District and no one else would do it with me and I'd asked loads of people and I just vaguely put the idea out to Pete and just straight away with even without knowing much about it, he went, yeah, I'll do that. Oh, this is brilliant. What is it? Like, I mean, I was 26, 20, no, 27. So it must be, we know each other 13 years now. Uh, 27, he was just about sort of 17, uh, maybe even 16. Um, and I thought, I can't believe this, this late teenage kid just wants to go and do this with me and he's totally enthusiastic let's do it and straight off we were really successful with doing things and we rolled from that challenge to hard first ascents to more challenges and they all were successful and i got this feeling straight away that we had this amazing kind of bond slash complementary style to each other that worked really well and you if you can be that successful that quickly with a partnership you know something's good is going on there. And so that just developed like a long, lifelong partnership and friendship with that person. And yeah, it's, it's great. And as an overview, what sort of things have you gone on to do together? Um, so we've climbed mm, most of the world's hardest cracks together now, whether it's first ascents um, or repeats. Um, and we, you know, like we established like the you know hardest off width in the world back in 2011. We've made a few films together doing stuff, which have been great fun. Uh, we've travelled all sorts of different countries, all over Europe and America. Uh, we haven't travelled to Asia together actually. Um, and again, just doing lots of first ascents, trad climbing, sport climbing. And then back in the UK, we've developed, I suppose, a good method for training and how to to get better at crack climbing and we've really tried to grow the whole crack climbing niche as a sort of industry and thing and a culture around it together and so we sort of by accident created this whole wide boys thing um that was instantly only born accidentally out of a blog when we've gone on our first trip together and we got our first bit of little sponsorship and we went I mean, this was back in, I think, 2009 or something. We're getting, I think we had, someone paid, me, paid, me, paid our flights, I think it was, to go to America. And we went, we need to be professional. I mean, someone's helped us out here. So 
what do professionals do? They have a blog. So we started up a blog together and we're like, what should we call it? And the two names that we came down with were either Wide Boys or The Pony Shufflers. And we're like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, what should we go? I think in the end, I'd gone, I think it just sounds maybe just not quite as pro I think we should just go for Wide Boys. And we, so we kind of just went for that for the blog, but it was only for the purpose of the blog, just to keep our sponsors updated and everything like that. And of course, as it happened, we had this whirlwind trip to the States and the blog just really ran away because we did very, very well with it. And, you know, got this big, you know, first ascent and the film out of it. And then it just grew from there. And then other people were saying, well, we were the white boys and just took the name off the blog. And after a while, you just kind of accept it and go, oh, well, yeah, that's okay, <laughs> fine. <laughs> it serves a purpose. And occasionally people don't know who we are. So they're just like, hey, the white boys. And we're like, hey, <laughs> they don't have to remember our name. Um, and for the uninitiated, can you explain what crack climbing is? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, so crack climbing is the form, a specialist form of climbing or rock climbing where you're, you're trying to climb up or along cracks in the rock faces by jamming different parts of your body into it. So this can be all the way from the tips of your fingers through to a massive wide crack that you can basically fit your whole of your body into. And those vary from being vertical slabby terrain all the way through to big roof cracks. And we've really specialized over the years of climbing these massive roof cracks, which can be, you know, 100 foot, 200 foot, 300 foot long. Where does the appeal for climbing that sort of terrain come from? By ch I think it's a mixture of chance because we came across a location where it was really good and we could do a lot of first ascents because we're very driven by first ascents and a need in both me and Pete to be not like everyone else. We like challenging the status quo and deliberately not following what other people do. And we, we relish in it. I mean, even from the first ascent perspective, we love it to do a first ascent where you're either not supposed to or in a way that you're not supposed to, just because we find it funny to, to challenge how other people do things. Um, yeah, we, I, th I think both of us are very particular about that. We don't want to be in the, stand, the standard box. We'd rather be in the box of, oh, you idiot, like, what are you doing that for? Uh, we enjoy being in that, that bit. But I think it's really interesting because you and Pete are fairly different characters, right? Hmm. And I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but I think you maybe come across as quite a serious character, you know, very driven, motivated, goal-focused lots of businesses, successful, etc. Do you think that you are a serious person? Uh, am I a serious person? Uh, I'm a serious person when I suppose it needs to be serious to achieve, like a, it's like a means to an end, probably, I think. I mean, certainly when I'm with Pete, it's just messing around the whole time and we'll be, I mean, it's just laughing. It's like medicine. <laughs> I could just, Oh, we're just howling with laughter the whole time. And it's going to be anything. I don't know, understand it. Like, hours can just pass by just hanging out with Pete, talking about random stuff or doing things together. Um, I mean, how many different novelty outfits have you been climbing with Pete in? Yeah, I mean, like, even the, the fancy dress stuff and going in. So that's a classic thing of the fancy dress is that Master's Edge that we go and climb every year on our birthdays, 
is a classic Peak District hard, you know, hard guys tick, like the, the thing to do if you're sort of proving your way in trad climbing. So we thought it'd be funny to challenge the establishment and go, hey, well, yeah, maybe it's not that hard if we can just go and do it in a fancy dress and kind of sort of take the piss out of trad climbing and taking yourself too seriously. We'll just sort of take the mick out of ourselves and the culture and the establishment by doing that. And so, yeah, and then before you know it, we're kind of committed a few years down the line. We're going, how many years have we been doing this for? Why do we keep doing it? But we're kind of committed to it, so you, you keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's a lot of fun. And I could, I've, in all the years of climbing that I've climbed with other people, I've never had such a good climbing relationship of blend of focus on drive, commitment to actually achieve something. And Pete is very, very driven. Like, don't let that ever fool you. He is one of the most driven people I know for sure, but we also have a mega mix of fun and lightheartedness that goes in with it. So it makes the serious feel so, you just lose the seriousness in it almost because it's so much fun. But yeah, and I find it interesting that you've both been on, you know, your most recent projects have been solo and without each other. Mm. Why do you think that is? Oh, well, we've actually done that for quite a few years. Oh, I didn't realise that. Yeah, so we have probably been doing that for, I would guess, five to seven years. Every single year we'll do stuff together, which is a big commitment project, and then we tend to go off for the most of the summer and do our own solo things. Um, and we've always treated it as being, uh, I don't know, uh, it's, we've valued it because we go, right, let's go off and do our own thing, and then we kind of gather back together again when we come back in like September or so and we'll sit down we'll go right what did you learn what did you find out and we like pick each other's brains on ah okay interesting ah how does that work? ah okay yeah it, so you've gone off and you've done almost like your own research in your own zone and then we collect our joint knowledge together and then we go right the together project for this year how are we going to use the stuff that we've used and learned separately and combine forces use all of our energy and experience to make something really special. And yeah, we've been doing that for years. So what was it that you have been doing recently? Uh, like this year? Yeah. Well, I mean, this, this year, and actually last year as well, because things tended to, they got a bit dragged off in terms of time and schedule, is I've totally gone off on a trail running, fell running, ultra running type. I don't even know what to call it really, but something along those lines, running a long way in, in mountain environments um, trying to kind of combine that with rock climbing and that's been a very new thing for me to to go away from just climbing really to more of a running climbing blend and can you talk through the specifics of the project and its origins yeah so um, about two years ago I sort of crossed a motivational threshold in my head where I'd had a concept for many many years to combine uh, one of the longest distance ultra fell challenges, um, fell running challenges in the Lake District, which is the Bob Graham round. Um, and that's like a full 24 hour uh, long distance fell running um, challenge. And I wanted to combine that with a well-known 24 hour rock climbing challenge, which is called the Classic Rock in the Lake District and do a mixture of the two 
and adding them in as a, a rock and rock and run combo and see whether I could do them under 24 hours, could they be combined and how would that all fit out into some huge day out in the mountains that would be just a perfect blend of, of everything, even though I, I kind of made up in my mind that it was going to be perfect because I hadn't really actually done, you know, a huge deal of running, but it, it just seemed like a really cool thing to do. And I knew it was going to be very hard for sure. Did you think it was possible? Uh, it was right on the threshold. But, uh, you, you get a good, when you've done a lot of projects and challenges over the years, you get a really good um, a, a sense of the possible and the impossible line. And you, you can move that line a little bit by changing things like timescales or tactics. Um, but you get good at refining your project choice to match that perfect zone where you're in the the very high degree of uncertainty. There's could be a lot of failure, a lot of setback, but ultimately if you achieve it, the satisfaction level in doing it is just incredible. Um, so I wanted to have a project that sat on that, you know, highly marginal line. And I, yeah, I mean, I knew from the outset that it was gonna be very marginal, but that seemed more appealing. And so what was your introduction to um, focused running like? Uh, first, so I started running, I think around January or February 2019. And my first introduction to it was, we'd gone up to the Lake District uh, to see some friends uh, for just some walking. And I think as usual, I didn't tell my wife that what I wanted to do. And I was like, oh, do you reckon you could just drop me out of the car here at Keswick? I'm just going to go for a run and I'll meet you in Buttermere, I think it was. Um, and so my first run was just to run sort of like leg five of the Bob Graham combo, but try and get to the hut where we were staying. And, and I just, I'd looked it up quickly on the internet the day before where the route was. And I just went for it. I was like, oh, I'm just so psyched. I'll just run from there and I'll meet them at the hut. I'm sure it'll be fine. Um, and, and I think I did turn up and it was okay. And that one was a reasonably long run. It was, I would guess, uh, I don't know the numbers, but maybe 15 miles or something. Um, and, and I got to the hut in the evening and I had a brilliant time. I'd, you know, I'd got out on my head torch. I was just winging it in the dark, not knowing my navigation. And, and I kind of had such a good experience with my first little dip of the toe in. I thought, this is brilliant. I'm all in now. I'm definitely motivated. And then from there, it was lots more time spent in the Lake District. And just as joyful and brilliant and perfect. Oh, far from perfect. A lot of fun. A lot of fun because... Uh, and Pete's also been very good at my playoff to this a lot of the time because I'm... When I say I'm bad at navigation, um, I'm really bad. I, I get lost way too much and... And I have to try and revert to using, you know, like a combination of paper map plus GPS. But I also have two GPS maps uh, downloaded on my phone just in case I don't seem to get or understand one of them. And I'm the sort of person that will complain that maps don't work because, well, they don't get me to where I want to go. So I, <laughs> maybe that shows about my psychology. I just go, the map doesn't work. Um, I get really pissed off with it, uh, especially if I'm getting cold. And so I spent at least the first 
season uh, up in the Lake District. So I did a good six months of a lot of running in the lakes, essentially learning the Lake District by, by foot. So I wasn't learning it by map or, you know, following trails that I'd seen on a GPS. I just ran the entire Lake District until I recognized every path of where I had to go, which is really good in the dark and in the cloud because you just know it really well. I had some absolute nightmares with doing that though. Like running around the same, you know, group of fell tops, doing double laps and coming back to the start and going, how am I still here? I've just been running for four hours and I'm still at the same place. Or like me getting lost and questioning a tourist and saying, oh, could I have a look at your map? Could you explain where we are on the map? And they would show me, but in my head, I had this idea of where I was. So I would just reject the map. I reject the tourist and go, well, they're just not dressed right. So they're probably wrong. And I think I know where I'm going, even though clearly I didn't know where I was going. And so I just carry on running in the direction I was going from like another three miles. I remember one time doing that and then getting to a, like a proper outdoor leader group who did, you know, had the maps around their, their necks in the little <laughs> plastic folders. So they, they looked like they knew what they're doing, like all in waterproofs, uh, sort of semi-responsible. And I asked them where it was. And then they showed me that the previous tourist had been right. And I was way, way off. I, I, like, I think I was trying to head to Honister and... I was convinced the next rise of hill would land me in Honister and then I'd be able to get a bus and I'd be able to get back into Keswick and finish my day and everything. Whereas really I was in Wasdale and, and that's a fair way away from where you should be. I thought I was two miles, say, from Honister and I was in bloody Wasdale. That's how bad it gets. But that's just your process, right? I mean, you've spent your first half of this conversation talking about your brain and your process. Your yeah. process was, I can't get them up to work, so I'm going to work something out that suits me instead. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to come up with my, yeah, my own way of doing it. And I, I remember talking to you quite some time ago, like maybe last year, and you asking, why don't you go and ask other people how to do this stuff um, and get some help? Like you're well connected in the professional sporting community. You could probably get loads of help with this, but I just don't find it as satisfying. And whilst I did eventually go out and have like the occasional day with some friends who kind of knew what they're doing who I think were horrified at how punter I was with it all of it it just wasn't as enjoyable for me as a process I want to be responsible for sorting myself out but it's that's fascinating because you're you know it's more than fair to say that you're operating at the elite level of you know human performance in your field so all of the you know whether you can call them competitors or not but all of your contemporaries are doing that they are researching what other people have done they are asking questions how do you justify that you know how do you think that you might be successful when you remove the other thousands of brains of experience i think it's a it's a combination of stubbornness commitment and uh, a sort of a deep appreciation of the what feels like a good learning process to me. When I, when I want to learn something, I want to be, again, it's like the all in thing. I want to be just so involved with it so that I can really have a chance of mastering it because I've learned over the years, that if you want to get to the point where you're refining and you're, you're fine tuning stuff and you're kind of polishing that diamond, is if you don't understand all the building blocks that go into it and you've truly experienced it with a good journey with like enough base you, you won't be as good at the refining part. So sure, I could have got 
a load of pros to help me and I could have maybe gone on a navigation course and just gone and paid for some days out with a you know, ML course. But I felt like that would have been building kind of visually like a tower and it wouldn't have had a very wide base because I could have got to the point where I would have gone, right, I need to go and try this challenge and I'll do links on it and I'll start going for it. But if I'd gone even slightly off the way or I couldn't navigate because there was no visibility, I just wouldn't have known the lakes very well. And, and I wouldn't have experienced all the terrain and the time and the different environments. I had to just be all in, like fully immersed. But this is what I'm building towards is that how much of you actually want to um, do the classic rock and the Bob Graham in a day and how much of you just wants to build up to that point? Uh, I would say it's probably weighted at least 75% into the process and the enjoyment of the learning and the setbacks and the challenges and the little mini progresses that you get all the way along the way and being able to laugh about it and again go back to Pete and tell him like what a nightmare I had with things and how it's going and whether I learned something that could come from running but we could transfer it back into climbing but my opinion is that you have to be quite heavily weighted in that process side of things to be a good achiever because if you wait too much in the on the achievement part one it takes so long to get to the point of achievement so you're not very happy in the process which is it's like a full tip of the iceberg sort of thing so you don't get the enjoyment of it you won't stick to the process and also that if you fail on your achievement part you'll be so unhappy and dissatisfied that you won't be able to cope with it very easily i don't think and even though I've had a lot of successes with things, I've also had failures or setbacks associated with goals and what I'm aiming for. And mostly I've been okay. Yeah, sure, I have struggled sometimes, but I don't see the be all and the end all is the thing at the end. Yeah, this is my last kind of left field question before we go into the meat of the challenge, but are you, are you 100% doing this for you? Are you trying to prove anything to anybody else? To, to someone else? Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, who could I prove this to? Uh, I like, do, you know what, do you know what this question has made me do? It's really interesting. I've gone, I need to find an answer for Matt. Like, I need to find someone that I could be proving this for. Like, a, yeah, I'm doing this for... I'm doing it for Pete <laughs> or, or something. And I'm like, I feel really dissatisfied that I can't give you at least a, a nugget of someone that I might be trying to improve it for or prove it for. But no, I don't think I'm trying to prove this for anyone at all. Um, not very much stuff. I, I quite like proving people wrong on stuff, but it, it needs a starting point from someone to have done the whole, you'll never succeed in... I don't know, fell running or someone goes, this is impossible. And I saw it in a magazine written once. Like, oh, that sounds cool. I'll challenge that idea. That would be more like approving it to someone. Um, but in this case, no, I just like doing it and like taking these things on. And oh, I find that so dissatisfying that I can't give you at least a nugget of who I'm trying to prove it for. But the most interesting thing yeah. is I'm asking you a loaded question. I don't, you know, I just need the truth. I mean, that's what I want. That's what I want out of this. So yeah. why is it dissatisfying? Because so much of life is 
is greys and no matter how much you try and say one thing it's often so there's something else underlying it or there's a side to it that you don't quite see and I like interacting with it, understanding it and sometimes being able to portray it and describe it so I find it dissatisfying to know that actually this thing is all about me which actually even now thinking about it sounds kind of quite selfish but I want to have something that at least is my brain always my brain always thinks in percentages and bloody proportions I can't stop doing it um, but I want to have like 5% that I can give to you that goes actually I think this is about proving it to uh, the sponsor last year that said something I don't know you got me off and right on a tangent here Matt because I am not satisfied with that answer but there you go <laughs> Yeah, but and I, you know, maybe this is cup of tea conversation for a different day, but that probably says a lot more about you than it does about the question. Hmm. Yeah, sorry, I just don't have anything to give you. That's I great. feel like I'm empty-handed. <laughs> Do you think you are selfish? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But that's a negative word, right? Uh. No, but I like the answer that I can give to you to that because this one has two sides to it, for sure. Because, yes, you can see a negative side to it. It takes away from others. Um, it can be a real problem for others that you interact with your life um, and the things that responsibilities you have for them elsewhere or the impact that you have on others. And you often, if you're very, very selfish, you can't allow too much other stuff to come in. But secondly... I think it's a good thing because you need to be like that to be committed and driven to a cause which has conflicts and noise that comes from elsewhere or setbacks. You've got to be doing that for you, for your reasons. And to me, that is selfish. Um, but it's, it's the balance. It's the seesaw on it. And it's how you, you balance that. And I think the two sides are actually complementary. It's like people have problems with like people who have big egos. I think actually ego is a very important thing. It's just how you balance it, how you control it, um, and how you impact that on others. I never see, you know, any for myself or any other athletes that I work with, I don't see having a good sized ego as being a problem. It's just how you, you work with it and deal with it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's relative, isn't it? Inflated ego is the issue, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, cool, right enough serious stuff what happened the first time you went to the running race <laughs> oh yeah so that was in in 2019 I had kind of geared up to try the challenge around the the classic rock and Bob Graham and stuff and the weather and the season got so crap like it just rained it was just awful um, and I got very very frustrated with it I needed to just have something to put my energy into because I was really fit at that stage and I looked up on the internet and found myself an ultra that was going on that I could enter at like last minute, which was in Wales, which I think was around something like 45 miles or so. So not obscene 100 mile ultra, but, you know, a good, you know, a significantly longer than a marathon. And I entered that and it seemed like a cool thing to go and do. So I just drove down in my van, stayed in there overnight um, and entered the ultra and... I was so excited for it because I was like, I am going to learn so much on this. And the cool thing was we had to catch a train ride from the end to the start with all the other competitors. And so we were sat on this train with all the other competitors. And I was like, 
so how does this work? Like, what do we, what do we do? Are there checkpoints? Um, how do you know whether you're winning? Um, how do you, like basically just asking them every question about where do I go for the start? How does it work? And they must have thought I was sharking them big time because of what happened later on in the day, because I was asking every punter question you can possibly imagine. But then when I actually went into the race and we kind of kicked off and started out on the race, I suppose within five or six miles or so, I was like, oh, I kind of like feel like I'm doing all right here. And I could see I was reasonably far up in the field. And so I was like, okay, this is exciting. This is kind of cool. And maybe my running has gone well and my process has worked, but I need to just control it. So I started just WhatsApping Pete all the way through the run. And I was like sending him messages like, okay, I'm in 10th position now, 10th position, kind of feeling okay. Uh, you know, what do you think? Um, and they're like, I was like getting my phone out and like recording audio messages as I was doing the race. And, uh, and I was like reading him through the thing. I was like, okay, I'm in seventh position. Oh, I'm on sixth. Oh, this fucker ahead of me. Okay, I'm just gonna like, I'm just gonna take it steady. I'm gonna take him on the next mile. I think I am, I think I am. And I was going around this whole race, like slowly going through it. Um, and I, I got to maybe the marathon distance. I think I asked one of the race officials at that point, who's ahead of me? Um, like what position am I in roughly? Because I was kind of like guessing just by who was ahead of me and who had passed me at the start. And he was like, oh, you're in the lead. I was like, oh, really? Oh, cool, <laughs> great. Uh, so then I just kept going really. And um, uh, luckily, like even on that, I mean, it was, a, it was a trail race that was a combination of a little bit of road, but then big open, you know, coastal paths and sort of fire road type things. Um, but I was even getting problems with getting lost on those courses. And this is like a proper race where they've got these big signs like runners this way. And I ended up in a caravan park, just running around all these static mo mobile caravans, just going insane, going, oh my God, I've only got 10 miles to the end, but I'm lost in a bloody caravan park, just running around like people's little mini gardens, them looking at me like, who's this dude running around in like a little ultra vest, looking sweaty and pissed off. And so I eventually just like walked out the back, like just went over a, uh, you know, like wall at the back of the caravan site and just went out onto the road again. I'm like, okay, right, here I am. Um, incidentally, I did ask the race organizers about that and they said every year people do get lost in the caravan park. So it wasn't 100% <laughs> me being crap, but very frustrating. Um, but anyway, yeah, I got to the end of the race and uh, won the race, which was surprising. I didn't think that was gonna happen. Um, and then I found out at the end as well that I got the course record on it as well, which was, kind of surprising um i hadn't I, I thought on that one that i hadn't um but they'd had someone who a few years back uh they hadn't had marshals on the course and he'd taken like a massive loop out of the course and taken like an hour ridiculously fast time and they like disqualified it but i looked it up beforehand to see what rough times i was looking for um so it's kind of like a uh, positive that i wasn't as crap at running that i maybe thought i was because i don't even but that's interesting. I was all in for the, but the last 10 seconds of that, you just said that you looked up the course record before mm -hmm. you showed up for your first ever running race. Yeah. I mean, that as a mindset, surely you can see that's rare. Yeah, I think it, yeah, probably is. I want to know 
where I'm aiming for, roughly. Because I wanted to see how I compare. Okay. Like, you know, like, I'd been completely in isolation across that Lake District, you know, year out in the fells, and going and... Because my ability to be able to, like, you know, compare and go for something and go for a record time or, you know, like a challenge, it's like a... It's a standard that you're holding yourself accountable to. So if I was going to try and break the classic rec rock record, it's a standard that you're accountable to, to to try and beat. So likewise, when you go and do a race, you want something that you're sort of accountable to or to have a reference point. Um, but whether I'd come first or come further in it wouldn't be hugely uh, bothering for me. It was more like, it was very amusing to have that. It's like a funny story that that happens the first time you go and do that. So, and I was just like so psyched after, I was like, oh, I've got to tell Pete about this. So I was like messaging him at the start going, at the end going, you're not going to believe it. I actually went and just blooming won that thing. That's really funny. And he was like chuckling away to himself. So that was the main like real satisfaction I had out of it was being able to like laugh with Pete and him go, oh, you're such a punter. How do you do that? You've hardly started running. Your legs are going to get fat. You're going to be rubbish at climbing. Like, it's great. That's some, yeah, it's ace. Yeah. So, I, well, there's lots of different angles I want to take with this, but I think the best one is to just, to say, can you tell me the story of what then happened with the attempt at the classic rock and the attempt at the challenge and how it all played out? Yeah, so, um, so fast forward into 2020 um, and came back around to another season again. And um, I'd spent the first three months of the year out for a knee injury. Um, and so I hadn't really kind of like got into my running early in the year. And I, I'd, I'd really hoped that I would do. So I'd be really hitting the ground running in the spring. And then the whole COVID thing kicked off. And then we had the kind of lockdown. We couldn't really go out to the outdoors and Lake District and, and doing all the challenge, the, the running and everything. So I just spent the first part of that spring running around the park and going as far as I could get away with into the Peak District to go for some runs and get my kind of fitness back again. And as lockdown sort of just was easing up, uh, two of the Lakes locals, um, Callum, uh, Caldwell Story and Will Burkett went and broke the record for the classic rock that was established at sort of 15 hours and a half or something at the time. And I think they got it down to 13 hours or so. And I was like, whoa, that has just picked up like the level to which I'm going to have to up my game now. Because I knew that I wanted to do the classic rock as my kind of first step into the bigger challenge. And and that was great when they did that, actually. Uh, initially, for the first half an hour, I was like, oh, crap, that's going to have to make me do a load more work now. I'm going to have to write, basically sharpen the swords so that I can go in with a bit more refined process. But then I was like, right, I'm back in now. I'm going to really get this right. So I started going up to the Lake District and really refining how I could cut some more time off what I thought I could do. Um, and then I went and had a go at doing the challenge I think somewhere, I've lost track of time now, but somewhere in the summer um, to try and get that record uh, down a little bit more. Um, and just to kind of know that I'd had a good go at a, like a big long day out in the Lake District. And 
I ended up being really sort of like backed into a corner with temperature and weather and I couldn't get a window that was right. And I think it ended up maybe being like the hottest day of the summer in the end and going and trying to do this thing in just boiling hot temperatures. I, think, I don't know, I can't remember what it was, but it was somewhere around the 26, 27 degrees. Um, and it was honestly a bit of a nightmare. Uh, I, I ran really well and I climbed really well all the way through to like halfway through the thing. So around six hours or so in, and then my body started to really be very upset with the temperatures and how hard I was going. Um, and I just, I just melted really. I was just, I, I couldn't, I was like, couldn't really start getting any food anymore. Cause I was kind of like dehydrated and nauseous and my body was overheating. So I was having to get in streams and lie down um, and just take like two, two, three minute blocks out all the way along the last six hours of the course just to cool my body temperature down. Um, and they're cold, the um, Lake District streams. And I was just lying down like head to toe in them to try and cool down. Um, and it was just getting me really kind of like dizzy and nauseous and just weird. Um, and I finally, and I, I just kept on plodding because I was, again, that thing like I was committed. I just wouldn't back down until literally I go to the point where I fail really. Like I am prepared to go to that point. And, and I got to the road running section at the end. And by then I was really, I'd say like proper wheels off then not loving life, um, full in the, in the hole. Um, yeah. Uh, it's actually kind of, oh yeah, anyway. Um, it's kind of intense actually thinking about some of that bit anyway. Uh, so uh, really in the hole and then I went to the last two crags in Borrowdale and the last one on Troutdale, I raved, arrived at the base of that and started climbing on it and I was spacing out so badly. As in, you know when you've had 10 pints and you were just spinning out and I was aware that basically I was climbing and soloing and I did not care like really didn't care and I was going to go to the point of just everything all in and and it was not nice it was not good but I was so fuzzy and out of it I kind of couldn't quite sense and judge it and I got through got through that route got to little Chamonix got to the top of that again spacing out all the way up on that and then topped out on on the top of the crag and I was I was there meeting um guy who was at the top and I think he tried to say something like hey are you all right how did that go and I think I just went hang on a second or something and I just like lay down like I felt like I was going to just pass out um and I think I just lay there for quite a bit of time not being able to really do anything I was so overheated just exhausted in a really bad shape physically um I just pushed my body way too much into a place it shouldn't really be going when you're trying to solo and run and go hard and that was a, not a good thing was it just your body that you pushed too hard mm, uh, yeah main, main, mainly body because my mind was still going I'm all in when you say you didn't care 
you didn't care because your body wasn't capable of caring. You know, you were too, you were 10 pints in as it were. Yeah. Was that the only thing or, you know, extreme scenarios and extreme exhaustion pull up all sorts of stuff, right? Yeah. And we start soul searching. Yeah. Was there any of that going on? Uh, no, there was no soul searching in that process. It was just, I'm all in and I will go until I fall. Which is where the really unpleasant uh, realization happened. And I think I apologized or even just said I was ashamed of myself um, in that couple of hours after I'd climbed because I was prepared to go to the point where I'd fall, which is really dumb. I, I, I really hate even thinking about it. Um, and I don't like that about myself in some ways. I mean, I can sit here now and go, who would do that? Why would you do that? Why do I even do that to myself? Um, it's just the most ridiculous thing. Why would I do that? Do you have an answer? I don't even have an answer. It's just stupid. It, it, I mean, I really still, hate it, actually. It's fresh, right? It's not mm. that long ago. No, no. But it, it made me realise a bit more about myself. It was another learning, learning process, a learning moment. And in a way, uh, it could sort of like slightly sort of be mirrored by some of those things around when I stopped drinking all those years ago because I made a realization that certain things I am capable of and I will do and I will go all in and, and then it's just pull out from them. And I, I really realized that about myself in, in that process and I, and I didn't like it. Yeah. So that was your successful. <laughs> yeah, um, I did break the, break the record by something. I can't remember what it was, maybe an hour or something. But I mean, that, that's so significant. You know, you've just been training to break this record. You've just won this race that you won by accident. These lads beat the record. That bothered you for a while and then it G'd you on. And now you can't tell me, you know, I have to remind you that you broke the record then while we're talking about it, and you say, yeah, I don't know how much by. <laughs> it's because I don't value it. Yeah. I, I don't value it at all. Um, even in the short while afterwards where you're sort of supposed to value it, about the only way I could value it was, one, that yeah, I did actually get it, so you know that's a little tick that you can put in your book. And oh, I just kept on coming back to, that was a crap process. I didn't pull it off very well on the day. Uh, I don't like how I dealt with myself or how I managed myself. And I don't like it. It wasn't very satisfying. So then it's almost a crap question, but it does the job. Then what happened? So as a result of that, um, I, one, I learned that you cannot go out in really, really hot temperatures, no matter how motivated you are. Uh, the, your body will only do certain, certain things. So. Uh, no more like 26, 27 degree days for running. And then after that, Will on his own came back and beat the record again. Um, and I think he took a relatively small amount of time off on it, maybe like 10 or 15 minutes, um, which uh, I was like, ah, cool. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, I wonder what he's done differently to be able to do this new time maybe it's just because he's got 
better conditions and he knows the course a little bit better. But I know that I had such a poor execution on that day and I really wasn't reflective of all the preparation and everything that I put in that I really won't be satisfied until I go back and have another go and try for a day where I actually execute and I put all those building blocks together and I get the satisfaction of the just getting all the parts to work together like I know how they can work together. So as soon as he did that, I was like, I have to go back and do that again because I just want to know how it can feel and how it can go together. Um, and I know that what I did in that previous time was rubbish. It was a horrible experience and I think I can do this better. Um, so I went back again on like a much cooler day and it was, it was more ideal um, and, and set out um, from, I think I set out maybe an hour later because by that time it was getting a little bit later in the year and the, the light wasn't as much and it went really, really well. Like again, ran really well, um, climbed really well. I was feeling like super confident with all of the climbing and the running, kind of like good flow experience in it, in the zone, just loving it, absolutely loving it. Um, and then I got to uh, Scarfell and um, the, the, one of the hard, hardest routes on there is Mosgill Grooves and it has uh, a tendency to be quite wet a lot of the year. Um, and I'd been up a few days beforehand to just wreck it and just make sure it was all dry again. And it was more or less, but there was just like a few little damp spots. Um, but I kind of like checked out where they were and how I felt about it. And then I went up on the day and you have to climb quite fast. You don't have to really go for it. You're trying to do most multi-pitch routes in 10 minutes or less. Um, otherwise, you're just not going to be you know, on time for these records. And I got onto the sort of the middle section of Mosgill Grooves. And there's a section where you move, or well, the way I do it is I move away from the grooves where it's wetter and I move out into the arete into it's like more exposed but harder climbing position. And you really paste your feet flat on the wall and you pull relatively hard on a crimp um, and you've got a side pull. And because I was rushing and I just didn't really check everything, I ended up um, having my hands just ping and slip on this flat edge that I was holding in the, in the groove. And so as a result, my hand came off the, the edge and because I was just flat pasted against the wall, like you're not even standing on the edge, you're just flat pasting. I did like one of those barn door things where you're like one hand on side pull, other foot on smear. And I was like, shit, I just blown it. It's gone, I'm out. And it just like, like reeled it in, just like, just slowly stopped in a barn door, just like a boring looking flag, <laughs> like waving in the wind. And I just stopped at a point and went, oh, oh, I'm not, oh, cool. Um, I put my foot back on um, and carried on climbing. Um, and yeah, it, uh, that moment there was in, you know, the last 23 years of climbing, was it 23? Yeah, 23 years climbing, um, by far the, time when I've just, I've basically blown it and I should have just done for myself. Um, and, and I didn't, uh, and I've had a lot of experience with soloing over the years and I'm really careful and I'm, I like, have a certain way of climbing on a solo and everything. And I've always considered a very good margin for error. And that really surprised me. Like the moment where you go, ah, okay, that's weird. That's different. 
Um, but just carried on, carried on with the challenge, um, carried on going because you're in, in on the moment. I just tried to switch back into it um, and uh, carried on running rounds. And the, the times were going good, um, conditions were good. Um, and then got through to the end road, road running section. Didn't feel like the total, you know, bonksness and annihilation as before. Um, and ran all the way through to the end and got the time down by another amount. But again, I can't quite remember what it was. Um, you might remember better than me. I think I did maybe like an hour better than my previous time, I think, ish. Um, but overall, I was, I got to the end of that one and I was actually quite satisfied because I'd, I'd climb really well all day. I'd run really well all day. It'd been a great day out and just loved being out on the fells. Um, but there was a bit of a, yeah, a, a tricky moment to, to think about and process. But I didn't do that then. I didn't really think about it too much. Um, I just knew that it was there and I needed to like, have a think about it over the next 24 hours. Was that self-preservation mode? Um, self-preservation. I don't know if it's self-preservation. It's more like I know myself well enough that I need to let stuff brew a bit and I need to sleep on it. I need to think about it and see, see how I feel because I knew it was quite a significant moment for me and I didn't want to jump to conclusions on it or do something rash about it quickly I just needed to like think about it and I also didn't really want to talk to anyone that day too much about it so that other people would impact how I felt um, I wanted to like just fully just think about it myself how did you feel um, initially most of the feeling was around um, it is such it's really weird I, can't, I don't know whether anyone else ever has this feeling but I was basically like split in my mind between I felt a really intense experience of the Tom that actually didn't hold it and was just either dead or like in a coma in a hospital or, or whatever and I, I was like talking and like feeling I was like conversationing between myself of that person and me that's just sitting in my van that evening feeling really knackered and going oh, this is such a shame. You've just blown loads of the stuff that you were really enjoying in your life. Like, I'm loving going out running and I really like climbing and I really love seeing my kids and hanging out with them and seeing them grow up and then want to do like some of my outdoor activities with me and all of my family and all of my work stuff and the projects we've got on at work and the businesses and the team and how much I love hanging out and doing with them. And all I could think of was like, this is such a shame, this is all gone. But like, I felt like it had gone, even though it hadn't. It's really hard to like explain how much I was in the mindset and the person that had blown it and talking to myself that hadn't. Um, and so I just kind of like, just thought about it and thought about it and then realized that I needed to like have a think about how I was gonna manage risk going forward because this was only a few days before I wanted to go for the big main challenge. And there's a lot more risk and exhaustion, fatigue and control in that. Um, and 
I just did a lot of thinking around basically that how much I was could potentially blow things and I was treading a fine line in terms of risk and that I don't back down from stuff like I was still quite fresh in my memory that thing about the previous attempt and how I'd gone to total exhaustion and fatigue and I won't stop so I can't even have people around me that will go are you feeling okay do you think you should calm it down I'll be like no of course I'm not I'm all in I'll go to the point of failing and and I'm prepared to do that and it made me think that actually doing the combination of both the Bob Graham and that classic rock isn't it doesn't sit in a zone that I'm comfortable with anymore I'm not even comfortable with it's more like this is probably objectively a kind of a stupid idea because it's sat now on the table of if I'm lucky I'll get through it probably and I'll come out the other side if I'm if I'm unlucky no how am I phrasing that so yeah if I'm if I'm lucky I get through it and I'll I'll get through the other side I don't I want it to be if you're very unlucky something will go wrong and it like flip from the other side and I just wasn't prepared to, to do that. You're back to your percentages, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think see this stuff. Uh, I need it to be like a, a 99 to 1 scenario, but I'd had two attempts on the classic rock, and one I was prepared to go to the point where I would just fall and fail, and, and I literally had no stopgap and no plug to pull on it, and the other one, a blooming nearly fell off the route. And that's two experiences out of two that were way out on the edge of what I've, you know, done in my last 23 years of climbing. And that seemed like a very poor track record. That's the track record of the guys that I know and my friends and people over the last years. They're all dead now. That's the kind of behavior that I saw in them. And I could do with not being dead because there's a load of stuff that I really want to do. So I want to be alive. <laughs> Basically, I just don't want to be dead. <laughs> and I'm just going to be really objective about it, even though I really want to do it. But I can't do it to myself. So you've decided you're not going to? Yeah, so I'm not going to do the classic plus Bob Graham all in a combo in the way that I was going to do it. Are you really not? No, I really am not. And I know that once I cross that line then I can set boundaries around that stuff but I never ever drink anymore I'm like a total I don't care how you know good this party is I'm not doing that I, I know how to like boundary these things and I can I can I, I can do that on that um, and I know it helps to explain and tell my process to others around me that that's what I'm not doing because I, I know they'll help keep me a little bit in check and I know that I can be personally accountable to my own decisions and why I'm doing them, but they're very hard to stick to. For sure, like the, the more impulsive, uh, kind of like monkey part of me goes, ah, oh, Tom, just, just go for it. You can do this, definitely can. Like you've got the, you can risk it. Maybe you just got freaked out that day uh, and it's fine and I, and I even like two days after I made that decision, I was out with Matt on the fells again, and I like, I was half like talking myself into maybe I could just backtrack on it and come up with some random reason why I could actually go and do it. 
but really the only way in which I can do that now is I have to change the risk profile uh, and I, I will need to go and do it with some kind of like roped element on it but within my comfort zone so I've been thinking about it like well I can maybe create some sort of like 30 foot death loop belay it's like self belay system and I can go with like two nuts and I can create like a self belay loop for myself on sections where I can cover it and I'm already, like I'm not totally risk averse for sure but I need to get it into a place where I think I can rationalize it and I think it is okay um, but I have to be careful on that because I can start going down the line I'll just still go all in so removing 30 foot death loops from the equation for a second have you made peace with the fact that this is off now yeah yeah how how can you do that so easily when you're so driven by it and it's consumed two years because I've learned so much from it and I've enjoyed so much of it I've met some really cool people up there I've had the most mega days out of every sort of being in howling winds and just laughing my head off that I'm just nearly getting swept off my feet and I know in about half an hour I will be freezing my nuts off and will be trying to run back down to the van before I totally, you know, do myself with, you know, cold exposure to beautiful days out and running for six, eight, ten hours just feeling amazing and seeing the best scenery of the Lake District to soloing around for hours on end on the best Lake District rock and being in the flow and the moment and meeting other people in the crags and because you're soloing in with other people doing multi-pitches you just get to chat to people at belays and I've met like groups from abroad people doing their first ever classic rocks I've met like women's only expeditions where they've like they've, I went on one, one day and there was women's only groups on five different crags all across the lakes because they'd all collected as groups and they were like helping each other in their trad climbing and I was seeing them all the different crags that I was going around and so and I was like chatting to them all I was like where are you from and it's just brilliant all of the process in it so I don't I don't have enough value and attachment on the thing right at the end so I just don't see anything really negative on it I, I, I can't I, I just yeah, I just can't. There's too much good that's come out of it all. And do you... That's a stupid question. Do you have some time off afterwards? I mean, you're straight on to the next thing, right? Yeah, I, I think time off for me is bad for me anyway. So, no, I don't have time off. It's the last time I'm going to do it because you and I could do this for eight hours in some sort of weird tennis match, but why is time off bad for you? Um... Because I, I just don't like stopping and, and it just comes back down to the same thing that it's my, my coping mechanism and I get so many positives out of the fact that I, I use it as a coping mechanism and I, and I get out of it the reward, the sort of positive cycling is the... Uh, learning and the fascination and the processes that I get to experience along the way and those it all together are very rewarding so as much that I might be a personally flawed person and having my own various issues with life I'm getting through it and I'm doing my best with it in a roundabout way <laughs> sure
Okay. I always ask two questions at the end of these. And I'm going to go there, but I'm going to ask you one. My favourite colour. Yeah, what's your favourite colour and what's your favourite pizza topping? Um, no, but before I do, I'm going to ask you a question that I've never asked anybody, which is, do you like yourself? Um, I've been asked this before, and I would say I increasingly like myself. So I'm getting better at liking myself uh over the years and yeah as i mature and i sort of i know it sounds really hippie but like grow as an individual and i'm all about improving as a person i'm getting better at that but i i also know that it's very um polarized it's very separated out i have a tom that is an adult i also have a tom as a child the tom as a child is a extremely problematic individual and that bit, there's a lot of hate, anger, issues with. And that's like a package just all off to the side. But the adult Tom is a much more refined and <laughs> can look after himself a bit more and just do better with stuff, be more functional. And, and so I hold hope and enjoyment on that part because I think eventually it can impact me as a whole, as a whole person uh, if it isn't too hippie like <laughs> no that's not i don't think it's even slightly hippie yeah i think yeah it's great okay what scares you heights <laughs> <laughs> i freaking hate heights <laughs> is that oh. your that's you going you're going with that as your answer yes yeah. <laughs> i really hate heights it's so good Especially now. You're probably expecting some sort of like really deep answer on what scares me, but... <laughs> well, I was, yeah, but we'll go with heights. I mean, we'll ignore the fact that it's maybe you avoiding answering in a deep way. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What gives you hope? Um... Oh, just give me one minute. Don't have one for you. That shows how problematic it is. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I don't know if I'll leave <laughs> Sorry, this in. <laughs> you don't need to apologise to me. I feel like I need to apologise to you. No, I just think, you know, you and I have had these conversations a few times. And I think that, I just think you're incredibly brave. And thanks for being honest and doing a lot more than just talking about rock climbing. Oh yeah, no problem at all. I mean, I always enjoy chatting to you and uh, I always hope that some of this stuff is useful to other people out there as well. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you're new to the podcast, then there's a whole back catalogue of conversations for you to enjoy. If you're a regular listener, then I look forward to seeing you back for the Kendall Mountain Festival series soon. For more information, check out theadventurepodcast.co.uk. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Pip Saunders and Alex Hall. The podcast is produced in association with Sidetrack magazine. So for an extra adventure fix, head to sidetrack.com. And finally, please tell your friends about us and leave us a review on iTunes. They make the world of difference.